you open your copy of God's Word with me to the letter of James, where we have been the last several weeks and will continue for a few weeks more. James chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 14 through 26 today. I would, as we begin this morning, submit that each one of us is one of three different types of people when it comes to how we relate to God and what we think about, how we approach our understanding of what it means to be saved from sin and right with God. We are either one, the kind of person who tries to live well in this life, being kind and compassionate with the hope that God will look favorably upon us and our good deeds and allow us into heaven. We are maybe a second kind of person who calls ourselves a Christian and perhaps walk down an aisle in response to a sermon, pray to prayer to receive Jesus, and who feels confident that our profession of faith all by itself is sufficient to save us, that we need not to have any sort of uh, evidence or, or need not live with any sort of obligation to holiness in our life. Just our faith by itself is okay. Or third, we're the kind of person who is trusting Jesus for salvation, seeking to live with love and compassion toward others, sharing the gospel, not out of guilt or out of fear for what God may do to us, but because we know the joy of having received the grace of God. Each of us is one of these three kinds of people. Unless you're here this morning and you're not a believer in God, not a follower of Jesus at all whatsoever, you think all of this is silly hogwash, but then you're here anyway, so... All of us are one of these three kinds of people. And this morning in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, we are going to see James, the brother of Jesus, bring a helpful corrective to wrong understandings of grace. Of those three kinds of people, only one is can truly call themselves a Christian, and we'll see that described in James's words here. But before we get into James 2, 14 to 26... I'd like to take a moment to be just very, very clear about what we as a church, uh, what we at First Baptist West Albuquerque believe about the Christian understanding of salvation and the gospel, the good news, that we may be made right with God. For that quick summary, I would turn us to uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's a few pages uh, ahead in your Bible of where we are presently, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where Paul says very clearly to the church at Ephesus, that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We believe that salvation is a gift of God's grace. That's what the word grace means, that it's a, it's a gift. It's not anything that we deserve, and it's not anything that we can earn for ourselves. We receive salvation by faith. That means by believing the facts about Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and also by entrusting our lives to, and our soul to the triune God to save us from our sin. Salvation received by faith is entirely a passive receiving of a work that we cannot do. All of salvation, including faith to believe, is a gift of God. That's what Paul says. Grace you are saved through faith. And this, all of this, the whole work of salvation is a gift of God. James tells his audience in James chapter 1, verse 21, to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive it passively. So that no one can even argue on the basis of their own merit their ability to muster up even enough faith to believe. Even that is a gift of God. 
And salvation occurs in the lives of those that God saves so that they may live holy lives, acting as ambassadors and ministers in the name of Christ to declare the gospel and to act with mercy to uh, those who are in real need. These are tasks that, as Paul says in in Ephesians 2.10, that God has prepared beforehand in advance to be done by those that he has graciously saved. So before we even look at James 2, 14 through 26, a sometimes problematic passage, if we're not approaching it rightly, I just want to be very clear about what we believe about salvation. God has made every one of us in his image to know, love, and worship him. And every one of us, by our own intentional actions, have rebelled against God. We have sinned and broken fellowship with him. But God has deemed it in his own wisdom right to save us by his grace as a gift, as he gives us faith to believe in Jesus, his son, who died on the cross for our sins and was raised again from the dead, that we might be right with him. We believe salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and no other way, and that salvation always results in a life that gives evidence through the works that we do and the way that we interact with others gives evidence to the salvation we've already received. So the main idea of James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 is this, that genuine saving faith is evidenced, is made clear, made manifest by Christian obedience to the commands of God. That's what James is telling us in the passage we'll see here in a moment. And so then Christians who have genuine faith, we who call ourselves uh, followers of Jesus, we who identify ourselves with our Savior, we will demonstrate our right relationship with God through observable works of obedience to him. As we see this very straight, very uh, uh, piercing, cutting word from James this morning, I would hope that we would be moved as followers of Christ to make our faith evident by obeying God's word. Not to obey God's word in the hopes that he will save us, but having been saved by faith, live to give evidence of the faith of the salvation that we have. So this morning, if you have been of the first sort of people that I mentioned, the one who is trusting in their works, trusting in your good deeds to make you right with God, this morning you should feel freed by the grace of God, not to do works to prove yourself to him, but to have faith in Jesus who proves us to God and who takes us to God. If you have, like the second sort of person, fall into into the trap of easy believism, that all I have to do is say I'm a Christian and I'm good with God, I would hope that this morning you would be convicted to repent of a false faith, of an ineffective faith, and instead receive Christ as Lord with repentance, real trust and reliance upon Christ, and obedience to his word. Stand with me this morning, would you, as we read James 2, 14 to 26. James, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered uh, offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, James has given us a doozy today. And if you don't see why it's a doozy yet, you will in a minute as we work our way through. As James talks about the kind of faith that believers, that followers of Jesus are to have and to display. He says several things about what this faith looks like and does. He teaches us in verses 14 through 17 that saving faith, faith that saves, always works. Faith that saves always works. It always does things. It always functions. James begins this section of this letter with a piercing question. He says, can faith in God that has no works, no deeds, no observable fruit actually save someone from their sins? This is a rhetorical question. The answer is implied in the way that James asks it. And the answer that he implies is no. This kind of faith that has no works cannot save. It's dead. He makes that even clearer in verse 17, where he says, if faith faith by itself does not have works, it is lifeless. It is dead. He calls it in verse 20, useless. It may be helpful for us to consider this morning what James means by two words that he uses with much frequency in this passage. What James means when he says the word faith and what he means when he says the word works. You have some space in your worship guide this morning where you can write down some definitions and you'll see them on the screen behind us. James uses the word faith 16 times in his letter. 11 of the 16 times that he uses the word faith occur in these verses where we are this morning. You probably saw it. It's like every other word he's talking about faith. He uses the same word for faith that is used all over the New Testament. He's not inventing a new term, and he means what the New Testament in general means by faith. That that faith is belief to the extent of complete trust and reliance. Belief to the extent of complete trust and reliance. In the context of James, faith is always trust and reliance upon the person and work of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 1, for instance, James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, in his letter, James nowhere denies the necessity of faith for salvation from sins. And and at that, he says... uh, 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 even more so, he affirms that, faith, that salvation comes by faith, even in verse 14, even in the way that he asks that rhetorical question. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Well, the implication there is there is that faith saves, but only a particular kind of faith. Faith in the New Testament is never merely giving mental assent to facts. Right. It always involves trust and reliance upon Christ. If I had a stool sitting next to me, it would be one thing for me to have a sort of professed faith, a confessed faith in, in the stool in its ability to hold me up with its four legs and, and seat top and everything. It's a whole other faith entirely for me to not just say I believe the stool will hold me up, but to actually plop myself down upon it, right? One kind of faith that only confesses belief in Jesus is the kind of faith that says, I believe that stool will hold me up. 
Saving faith is the kind of faith that plops your rear end back down on that stool. James also uses the word works. What does he mean by works? Well, again, he uses this word frequently in the course of his letter, 15 times, 13 of which occur in these verses too. You probably noticed that almost every time as we were reading through the passage this morning, James mentions either faith or works. The other word, works or faith, is right on the tail end of what he just said. The, the two are, are working together. Works for James means simply this, deeds of obedience, service, mercy, and compassion that are done by Christians, that are done by those who have placed faith in Christ. Deeds of obedience, service, mercy, compassion that are done by Christians. In verses 15 and 16 specifically, you saw these kinds of works illustrated by caring for the poorly clothed and for the hungry fellow Christian. This is an example of the kind of works that believers are to do. Now, the command to offer works of mercy, care, and compassion are no stranger to us in James. We've seen it several times already as we've studied this letter. Already James has told us that we are not to be hearers of the word of God only, but to be doers of it, who practice pure religion that is marked by care for widows and for orphans, the most vulnerable in any society. Likewise, James has commanded those who hold the faith in the glorious Lord Jesus, as we saw last week, to repent of partiality, of giving deference and preference to certain kinds of people based on how they look over against others, and instead to honor and to care for the poor among the fellowship of Christians. And then again in our passage today, James says the same thing, that works of mercy and care for fellow believers are the kind of deeds that are generated by a genuine faith and trust in Jesus, giving clothing, giving daily food to believers, brothers or sisters who lack those things. So when James says that faith by itself, apart from works, is dead, he's simply telling us that saying, I'm a Christian or I believe in Jesus is not in and of itself sufficient evidence of saving faith. To simply identify verbally as a Christian is not enough to demonstrate evidence of faith that has really saved you. Now, the confession, Jesus is Lord, is necessary for salvation. No one can be saved unless they have submitted to Christ as Lord and as Savior of their lives. But that very confession, Jesus is Lord, implies what? A willingness to obey what he commands us to do. If Christ is Lord, if Jesus is King, and we are submitting to his kingship, to his rulership in our lives, what does that mean but that we will obey what he commands? So faith in Christ as Lord ought to lead to acts of obedience out of our relationship to to him, to do what the risen King of our heart has commanded us to do. And the Apostle John affirms this very same truth when he writes in his first letter, 1 John 3, 16 to 18, these words, The Apostle John says, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for those who are our fellow believers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So notice this morning, friends, James is not saying that works save anyone. Works do nothing to prove our worthiness or our merit to God. There's nothing you can do in this life to prove that you are worthy of receiving God's grace. In fact, even the rhetorical question of verse 14, can that faith save him? Clearly demonstrates that it is faith indeed that saves. 
But saving faith is always closely followed by the fruit of works done in obedience in the name and love of Christ. So friend, can you be saved from your sin? Can you rightly be called a Christian if you say you believe in Jesus, but you do no deeds of care and compassion for others? James says, no. But you know what? Jesus says no too. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was interacting with different kinds of people who would bring particular kinds of uh, opposition or objection to the things that he was teaching. And in Matthew 7, verses 18 and 20, Jesus, speaking about those who would pretend to be his followers, but who are uh, uh, on the outside righteous prophets, but uh, on the inside have a, a whole different sort of orientation toward God. Those who are sheep in wolves' clothing, Nope, say that wrong. Wolves in, sheep clo- wolves in sheep's clothing. Jesus says this about those who, who are pretenders of the faith. He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, false believers, false prophets, wrong teachers. You will recognize them by their fruits. So it is not enough to simply say, I am an apple tree. You've got to also grow apples. If there are no apples upon the apple tree, an apple tree, it is not. Genetically, maybe, but there's no fruit. So how can you really know what sort of tree it is? Jesus says the same thing is true in every individual's life. If one says that they are right with God, if they've been saved from sin, then you will see the fruit of that. You'll see the results of that in their life, not just in words that they say, but in the deeds that they do. And James, showing a clear understanding of the teaching of his brother Jesus, says the same thing. Faith without works, faith without fruit is dead. Dear Christian, what is the result of your faith? What is its fruit? Does your faith spill out of you in care and compassion for the hurting and the destitute? Does your love for Christ lead you to love the poor? Has your trust in Jesus who pays for your sins driven you to meet the real and physical needs of the faithful among us? Indeed, saving faith always works. It always results in action. What do our actions, brothers and sisters, reveal about our faith? That's the question that James is leading to us to ask. And, and he's not leading us to ask that as like a, just an exercise of intellection, but he's asking us to, uh, uh, he's leading us to ask that question in a real evaluative sense about our own lives. How does the way that I live and interact with others in the body of faith and outside the body of faith give evidence to the fact that my heart has been made, uh, brought to life by God's grace as he's given me faith to trust in Jesus? Saving faith always works, says James. And in verses 18 through 25, he says the same thing, but slightly differently, that only a working faith saves. Saving faith always works, but only a working faith is actually powerful to save. Now we affirm, as James does, that salvation is only by faith. I feel like I've said that word 147 times already today. But in verses 18 through 25, James points out that only an active and a working faith is actually the kind of faith that leads us to salvation, that brings salvation to our lives. In these verses, James engages in a dialogue with an imaginary objector, right? That, that 
person in verse 18, that someone who will say. This is not a real person. This is an, an, an imagined individual who's argue, who, who James conjures up to argue against his, uh, his assertion so that he can prove his point. The imaginary objector would say to James, well, look, James, you have faith and I have works. So as to mean that faith and works are separate parts of the life of the Christian. Like some people in the Christian church have, have faith in Jesus. And some people in the church have, have works of good deeds and stuff. And, and we, can all, we can each just draw a line down the middle. And the faith people can do the faith stuff. And the works people can do the works stuff. And we can all get along together and all call ourselves Christians. James says, absolutely not. This is nonsense. Because a confession of faith alone, without works that give evidence to its existence, are just meaningless, useless words in the mouth of an unbeliever. The one who says, I'm a Christian, but has no fruit of a life with Christ in their life whatsoever, is saying useless words every time they say, I'm a Christian. Because there's no evidence of faith that is saved. The common confession of faithful Jews was a repetition of Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Those verse, that verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. James says in verse 19, You believe that God is one. He's invoking this, this uh, ancient Jewish confession. You believe that God is one. You have a faith in the existence of God. You do well. Good for you. It is good to confess that God exists. It is good to confess that he alone is divine. These are true things about God. But this is not a faith or a confession that brings forgiveness of our sins. Because as James notes, even the demons know these facts about God. Even demons know that he is the only God. Even even demons know that there is no other God like him. Even demons know that he will judge sin and evil in all of his righteousness at the end of time. Demons know these things and they are not saved because they have no faith in Christ. They have no repentance in their lives. And so James says, "You, you say that God is one, good for you. Even the demons believe this, but at least they have the sense to shudder at the thought of only confessing that God exists without actually being obedient to him. It is a terrifying thing to say God exists and not to have any fear for his judgment for your sin. Deedless faith, a faith without works, a faith that that only amounts to mental, uh, mental assent to the facts about God is foolish and useless. Simply believing God exists, simply believing Jesus was born, died, and raised from the dead, and and even having a particular reverence or respect for God will not save you from your sins. Only a faith that is demonstrated, that is evidenced by the works that it does, can save. So James turns to Abraham, the father of faith. If you're going to appeal to anyone in the Old Testament to make any point about faith, Abraham is your guy, right? He's the father of the people of Israel. Uh, He's the one to whom the promise was given that uh, he would be the father of many nations, uh, that God would make his name great, and he'd be a blessing to all the whole world. Verse 21, as James introduces Abraham as an illustration, at first presents us with a problem. As James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
Here he's referring to the events of Genesis chapter 22. Now we know that Abraham was called by God in Genesis 12, that there's a covenant between he and God in Genesis 15, that that covenant was, uh, was, was sort of uh, reiterated in Genesis 17, and then there's this uh, work of uh, Abraham offering his son Isaac uh, at the test of God, at God's test of Abraham's faith uh, as a sacrifice to him. Of course, that sacrifice was interrupted by God uh, to demonstrate that God is not like like the other gods of the world who uh, requires child sacrifice. But here, James is referring to Genesis 22 and that, that uh, succession of events that led Abraham to uh, profess or to demonstrate the faith that he had by being obedient to God. He said Abraham was justified by those works. The problem appears when we hold James 2.21 up to other places of Scripture in particular, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We're there in Romans 4, verses 1 through 4. Listen carefully. Paul says this, What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? And here he cites Genesis fifteen six: Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gifts, but as his due. So James says very clearly, Abraham is justified by works. And Paul says that is not the case at all. Paul says Abraham is not justified by works in any sense. So who's right? Who's wrong? Should James or Paul be torn out of our Bibles because they seem to be in contradiction? Well, let's look a little bit deeper. We looked a little bit deeper at the word faith and the word works. Let's look a little bit deeper just for a moment at this word justification. The word justification means in the biblical sense, most clearly being made right with God. That's what, that's what justified means, being made right with God. Justification is the purpose of salvation. It's, the, it's God's goal in, in giving, uh, providing atonement for our sins, to have our sins forgiven and to be right with him. That's what we're aiming for. That's what God is aiming for in salvation is our justification to him. So are James and Paul at odds? James says God was, uh, uh, Abraham was made right with God by his works. Paul says there's no way Abraham was made right by his works. Who, who, who's right? Who's wrong? What do we do with this tension? Are these two fighting with each other? I say no. And a smarter person than me, Pastor David Platt, says the same thing too, that they're not in contention. Rather, he says of this apparent problem that Paul and James are, are, are fighting with each other about what, just, what, what works do and don't do and how justification comes. He says that they're not facing one another, fighting each other over the meaning of justification, but rather like Batman and Robin in the old TV show are fighting back to back, defending the one same gospel of justification by faith alone against different enemies in the world. James and Paul are fighting back to back, protecting the same gospel against two different enemies and opponents to the gospel of Jesus. On the one hand, Paul is fighting against the non-Christian Jewish opponents who would argue that being made right with God, justification comes only from doing the works of the law of God, particularly keeping the Sabbath and the holiness code and especially the practice of circumcision, that you got to do those things if you want to be right with God. Faith in Jesus, not so important. You got to do the things God says to do. James, on the other hand, 
is fighting against, not, not against the, the harsh legalism of, of the Judaizers who would say you have to follow the law to be saved, but James, on the other hand, is fighting against a trendy sort of easy believism in his own day and that plagues the church even today that says you can be right with God just by saying the right things about him with no actual change to your behavior. So, Paul, so, so each, Paul and James, are speaking about justification in different senses. Paul is speaking about justification in the positional sense. Paul is defending uh, salvation by grace through faith and justification with God on a positional uh, sort of scale. He says we are only really right with God when he himself declares that we are holy as we trust in Christ by faith. Paul, fighting against those Judaizers who would say, you have to do these works of the law in addition to faith. Paul says, no, absolutely not. Only faith saves. And in fact, we see that, that faith makes us right with God, even from Genesis 15, 6. Because before ever uh, Abraham had practiced circumcision in his own household, and he was the first among the Hebrews to do it, God declared him righteous as he believed in God's promises. So justification comes apart from works in the positional sense. What that means, friend, is when you trust in Jesus, when you give your life to him as Savior and Lord, when you place your faith and your trust and your reliance upon him, God looks at you no longer as a sinner, but now as one who has been clothed in the righteousness of his son. You are declared holy even as he is holy. Now there's a difference between declaration and reality. Though we are declared holy, we know that in this life we still struggle with sin. We're still being sanctified. But Paul says at the moment of genuine faith, you are declared, you are positionally justified to God. But James speaks about justification in a different sense. Not in an opposing sense, but in a complementary sense. James speaks about justification in a practical way. James is speaking here in chapter 2 about practical justification. By practical justification, I mean the positional kind of being right with God, working itself out moment by moment, day by day, in the life of the one who's been made right. Practical justification is this, that those who are really declared holy by God through faith live in such a way that demonstrates the holiness that they have received. Right? So the holiness that's been declared gets lived out in our own lives. And thus, in that way, the, the gospel of salvation by uh, grace through faith in Jesus is protected. It's protected against those who say you have to do stuff to prove yourself to God. And it's, and it's uh, protected against those who say you don't have to do anything. All you got to do is say the right words. Explaining what he means by Abraham was justified by works, James says that faith was active, that it was literally working alongside his deeds of obedience. And that by Abraham's deeds of obedience, his faith was completed. It was perfected. His faith was matured. It was filled up with significance by the works of obedience he did to God. Thus his obedience, Abraham's works, are not a complement to his faith. They're not two parts of a puzzle fitting together, but rather his obedience, Abraham's works, are the fulfillment of his faith. Just as a, a seed that falls into the ground grows into whatever kind of plant that it was, so also faith, when it is implanted into our hearts, faith in Christ will grow out, will branch out, will, will show fruit of the faith that has been implanted, you see? So James and Paul both cite Genesis fifteen six as evidence of justification by a faith that functions. They both say Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. 
Paul on the side of saying Abraham believed God ever before he did a work of righteousness and he was counted righteous with God. And James on the other hand saying Abraham believed God with such a faith that worked itself out in his life. What I love here about James is that he gives a second example of a working, functioning faith. Not just Abraham, the father of faith, the dude that everyone wants to be like, but somebody else that many of us would not particularly aspire to be like, I don't think. In verse 25, James uses the example of Rahab, the prostitute who lived in Jericho, who hid spies of Israel in her apartment in that city as they were spying out the the city to eventually conquer it. Her faith, Rahab's faith, this Jerichoite prostitute, was that God was working through the Israelites to judge Jericho for their long-standing disobedience and sin and rebellion against God. And her faith in what God was doing through the people of Israel led her to join with Israel in faith in the one true God, in Yahweh. Her faith in Yahweh then led her to acts of obedience to him, protecting what are now her people. Because by faith in God, she is joined to Israel. So now she's protecting her people against their enemies, the Jerichoites, among whom she once belonged. She shows compassion upon God's people because of her faith in him. And thus she also, James says, was justified by her works, not because she did works, but because her works demonstrated a genuine faith that she already held. This is the good news, dear friends. Patriarch or prostitute, only a working faith in Jesus Christ saves. So whether you're at the top of the ladder socially or you're at the very bottom of what people would say the dregs of society are, there is one way to be made right with God. And it's no different for the patriarch or the prostitute or anybody else in between. It is through faith in Jesus Christ who died for sins and rose again, trusting and uh, relying uh, in him to such a degree that that sort of faith works itself out in the things that we do, that our lives begin to look like his life, that our desires and our deeds begin to look like what he desired and did and said and commanded us to do. Saving faith always works. Only a working faith saves. And finally, James tells us, particularly in verse 26, but he makes the same point in verse 17, that a living, saving faith is a working faith. Seems like I've said the same thing three different ways, but I think it's because James says the same thing three different ways. Saving faith always works. Only working faith saves. A living, saving faith is a working faith. To close this section of his letter, James reiterates his main point with one more illustration. He says again, faith without works is dead, just as he did in verse 17. And now James compares works and faith to spirit and the body. Just as the spirit enlivens and animates the body of man, James says, so also deeds of Christ-like compassion animate and put to action the faith of the Christian. Saving faith is a living faith, and a living faith in Christ is a working faith. That is, it shows itself, it bears fruit, it becomes obvious in the way that we live in the world and among our brothers and sisters. Dear Christian this morning, do not be deceived. This is the only faith that ultimately brings salvation. The only faith that ultimately makes us right with God is a faith that is planted and nurtured in our hearts that leads to the kind of works that Christ did. Again, I appeal to Jesus, the brother of James, our Savior, who taught uh, through a parable in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, this very same principle. 
Jesus said this, when the son of man comes in his glory, speaking of the day of the last judgment and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, one of the least of those who have been united to me by faith, you did it also to me. Then the king will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Here's the point of the parable. Jesus is the king. He's the son of man who's coming in his glory, who's, who's bringing all people to himself for judgment. And he separates them, the sheep from the goats. So here's the image. There's one shepherd and in his flock are many, are two different kinds of animals. Those who are following him because they love him, because of the care that he gives, because they know that he leads them to good pasture, because he is setting a model for their own lives to to emulate and imitate, because they have complete trust and reliance upon him and another set of animals that just go wherever he goes because there always seems to be food around. Jesus says at the end of time, at the last judgment, these two will be separated. The point is there are both sheep and goats within the church. And they all seem to be following the same shepherd. And yet at the end of time, there will be a a delineation, a separation between some. Those who had real faith, saving faith that worked itself out in love and compassion and care for others because out of their love for the chief shepherd, Jesus, they did the same things he did. They'll be separated and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven while those who said, I'm just walking where he walks. I'm just with this guy because there always seems to be food around. Those goats who only profess faith in Jesus with their lips but do nothing with their lives will be cast into eternal torment in hell. Jesus does not mince words about what kind of faith actually saves. It is real faith, genuine faith that always works itself out in our lives. I begin by saying each of us falls into the category of one of three different kinds of people this morning. Either one, we are those who are trying to live well in this life, being kind and compassionate, doing works with faith, with hope that God will look upon our works and allow us into heaven. Dear friend, if that is you this morning, I hope that you will stop living your life according to the guilt and fear and terror of being judged by God and instead see his grace for you. 
knowing that, that while there was no work you could do in this life to make up for your sins, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, paid for all your sins with his sinless life on the cross so that you wouldn't have to do a single thing to prove your worthiness to God. You who are trying to prove yourself to God, to squeak into heaven by, by whatever slim margin of good works you can, be free today to live in obedience to Jesus. Be free from guilt and fear to live out of gratitude and uh, for the grace that you have received through, uh, through, through Jesus and faith in him. Turn to Jesus in true faith for the first time. Recognize that there's nothing you can do to save yourself or to put yourself in the good graces of God, but that because Jesus gave his sinless life for you and rose from the dead, God is is willing and desiring to look upon you as his righteous son if only you will depend upon Christ. If you're the second kind of person, the kind of person who calls yourself a Christian, you identify with this church, you've identified with church your whole life, Perhaps you walked down an aisle, said a prayer with a pastor, but all your life you've just been counting on your confession of faith in Jesus so many odd years ago to be enough to save you, and you don't feel any sort of compulsion or desire to do the things that Jesus did. If you are convicted by what James says today, that saving faith always works, only working faith saves, and that a living, saving faith is a working kind of faith, if you're convicted by that today, respond to that conviction. Repent of having a worksless faith. Renew your faith in Jesus. Begin to rely upon him for real for the first time, if ever. Turn from your deedsless faith to follow Jesus with a life of obedience. Maybe you're the third kind of person. The kind of person who's trusting Jesus for salvation. You know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And you are genuinely seeking to live with love and compassion toward others, sharing the gospel out of the joy that you have for having received the grace of God. To you, I say today, be encouraged. Be encouraged that you are doing and being obedient to what God, through James, is commanding the church to do, to have a faith that works to have a saving faith that is functioning in the world, extending the gospel and the grace of God to others. Two kinds of us need to be convicted this morning. The third kind of us need to be encouraged. However the Lord is working in your heart and whatever truth he's revealing to you today about what kind of person you are and how you need to respond to his word this morning, do it without delay. If you need to be encouraged, be encouraged. Thank God for a word of, of, of edification today. But if you're being convicted, thank God for that too. And respond to conviction with repentance and faith, reliance, trust upon Jesus alone that you might live your life even as he lived his. And pray for us.